inspiration. You were there to help me out. You just saw the need and said, can I help you? We learn a lot from watching other horses and watching other riders. I'm Julie Goodnight, and thanks for listening to my podcast about horse training and equestrian sports. Be sure to hit subscribe on your favorite podcast platform so you won't miss a single episode. And if you get a chance, it'd be awesome if you'd give this podcast a rating and review. It helps me out a lot, and it helps other horse lovers find this podcast. Since the last time we recorded, well, not much has changed around here. We're month five into this pandemic, and since my business travel has yet to resume, I've been spending a lot more time at home, same as the last five months. Uh, But it's been great. I've been uh, making the most of it as well as I can, spending a lot of time at the lake, boating, fishing, swimming, and paddleboarding. I've discovered stand-up paddleboarding is a really complimentary exercise for riding because it's a, you know, it hugely involves your balance. You're constantly using your core strength to both paddle and balance on the board. And also it's a dynamic balance, a balance that's constantly changing as the water shifts and the wind shifts and waves come and go. And uh, it, it really has a lot of similarities to riding. And so I always enjoy sports that are training and conditioning me um, well for riding. So it's kind of killing two birds with one stone. So that's been my big fun exercise thing this summer. And um, the horses are all doing well around here. They're kind of winding down the summer, starting to get a little tired of the green grass, definitely getting a lot tired of the heat and the bugs. And they're really wanting to spend more time in the barn. It just just goes to show you um, with horses, the grass is always greener on the other side of the fence. So um, now that they get all the time, turnout time and green grass they want, um, they are actually preferring, preferring to spend more time in the barn. So that's just the way that goes. Our um, foster horse, Doc Gunner, our four-year-old deaf paint horse that was rescued in December, Um, has been pretty much in rehabilitation since then. He's been at our place for three months now. We're seeing huge payoffs in his health and conditioning. We've put a lot of work into getting this horse healthy and strong, and we're just now starting to reap the benefits of that. So he's every day, he's a little more energetic and enthusiastic and you know, acting more like a four-year-old horse should should act. And um, it's been fun. We've been sharing his training live on Facebook. We're um, live posting mostly on Wednesdays to give you an update on where we are with his training. You can view all of the posts um, that we've done, training.gunner on YouTube or Facebook. So be sure to check that out. And, you know, an interesting... COVID phenomena is that saddle sales are off the chart, not just for us, but saddle dealers, not just all over the country, but all over the world are experiencing this huge increase in the volume of sales. And that's kind of interesting. Nobody's quite sure entirely what to make of it. 
except for the obvious, you know, changes in people's lifestyles and perspectives, new, new um, awakening of the benefits of outdoor sports. Um, so, you know, in the end, ultimately, this may end up being a good thing for horses and a good thing for the horse industry. So uh, we'll keep a pulse on that. If you're if you are in the market to be buying a saddle soon, you might want to lay your hands on one because they're flying off the shelves and getting harder to get. It's it's great. Uh, great to see. Another bright side to the shutdown is that I've seen a big increase in my online interactive training program. Um, that program includes assignments that you do with your horse. Um, there are study assignments, groundwork assignments, um, horse training assignments, and equitation assignments. And you get all the resources you need to do the assignments, and you complete the assignments and get feedback from me, plus personalized coaching from me along the way. I've got a lot of active students, some with multiple horses that they're putting through the program. So it's really fun for me to help. It's fun for me to follow their progress. And um, fortunately, right now, it's what's keeping me teaching. You know, I love teaching horsemanship, but not traveling to clinics as much, um, you know, it makes me appreciate doing it online all the more. Our streaming videos have also become a popular pastime. Um, we offer library subscriptions to hundreds of horse training videos, audios, articles, plus 260 episodes of Horse Master, as well as the behind-the-scenes footage for each episode. All of that is streaming on demand. All of that content is searchable by topic, by keywords. So it's a great resource for you to find all the horsemanship answers you need when you need them. So check out all my online programs and streaming services at signin.juliegoodnight.com. Today's topic is counter-canter. I'll discuss what it is, when it's the right time to incorporate counter-canter into your training regimen, why you need it, and how you and your horse benefit, and most importantly, how to do it. Plus, I've got some brand new questions to answer straight from our listeners in What the Hey Q&A at the end of this podcast. Today, I want to talk to you about the counter-canter. Now, there's a famous quote that goes way back that says, one man's wrong lead is another man's counter canter. And that pretty much sums up what the counter canter is. It refers to the intentional wrong lead. So basically, um, counter cantering is when you're making a turn or a circle and you are intentionally on the wrong lead. First and foremost, this is an exercise of obedience, and we'll talk about more about that in a minute. But secondly, it's also an exercise of conditioning and balance and uh, really refining your communication and control with the horse. So we, when we ask for the counter canter, first of all, it involves a turn or a circle because the only way you would know whether you were on the correct lead or the wrong lead is if you are on a turn. If you're going in a straight line forever, there really is no wrong lead. You could either be on the right lead or the left lead and it wouldn't matter. But if you're circling or turning to the right, you should always be on the right lead. And if you're circling or turning to the left, you should always be on the left lead. And so that's what we refer to as the correct lead. 
So at some point in the horse's training, we begin to intentionally take the incorrect lead, the wrong lead, the off lead, the outside lead, or the counter lead. And um, the horse must in this moment defer to the rider uh, to take the lead that's asked for rather than the lead that is easiest and smartest for him to do. And also, it's important that you understand the difference between the counter canter and the cross canter. These are terms that are often confused, and both of them are somewhat confusing, so it's not hard to do. So the counter canter is the intentional cueing of the horse for the wrong lead. The cross canter is uh, more formally known as the horse being disunited at the canter, and what it means is that the horse is on one lead in front and a different lead behind. So the horse, when we refer to the uh, correct lead or the canter lead, either one on the horse, um, we're referring to both the front legs and the hind legs of the horse. So he has two leads. So he has a front lead and a hind lead. And he's only on the correct lead when both uh, front and hind legs are leading, either left or right legs leading. And so cross canter refers to the disuniting of the horse so that he's on let's say the left lead in the front legs, but he's on the right lead in the hind legs. This is not a true gait. It's considered the wrong lead, and it's very uncomfortable and rough. You'll you'll feel it right away when your horse begins to cross canter. And so that's not something we ever do on purpose, and it's more of a red flag that if you have a horse that is is often cross cantering probably something physically going on with that horse that's making it difficult for him to sustain a proper lead um, so we would consider that you know uh, an infirmity or, or something wrong with the horse so cross canter is bad um, counter canter is good when you're doing it on purpose <laughs> so um there we get back to one man's wrong lead is another man's counter canter. And uh, it's funny because I I like to work my horses in the counter canter a lot. And it, you often when people are watching me, I wonder, do they just think I don't know what lead my horse is on? Or do they know I'm doing the counter canter? And so mostly I, do, I just, I don't really worry too much about it. But it's always a funny thing when you're counter cantering. Uh, if someone tries to jump in and tell you that you're doing it wrong. So that begs the question then, why why do you do the counter canter? Why would you intentionally take the wrong lead? Um, well, first, let's talk about when, when we're going to incorporate the counter canter, because it's not a beginning exercise. It's not an exercise at all for green horses. Um, we want the horses to be pretty far along in their training, uh, very solid at the walk, trot, and canter. Um, by the way, it doesn't matter. Um, nothing that I'm going to talk about in terms of the counter canter is different between English and Western. And so um, do not concern yourself with the discipline that you ride. This is just um, uh, something that happens in the progression of the training of the horse and um, with arena or, or finish level skills. And so we're not going to bring the counter canter into the horse's training 
until he's uh, pretty solid horse. He's working working on more advanced maneuvers. He's working on more specific disciplines. By then, um, he works well at the walk, trot, and canter. He knows collection. He's transitioning well from the walk to the canter. And most importantly, he takes the correct lead all the time. So you never have an issue of cueing this horse to take the correct lead. By the time you get there with that horse, he's pretty far along in his training, and it is time to introduce the counter canter. Now, I love to do this in my horsemanship clinics when I get really advanced riders on advanced horses. I will ask them to pick up the counter canter, and I'm always I always get a chuckle out of the horses that won't do it. Um, sometimes the most seemingly finished and polished show horses will not pick up the counter canter only because it is so ingrained in them to take the correct lead that they just refuse to do it. And um, so the horse is pretty far, far along in his training. He, his canter departures are excellent from walk to canter, and he always takes the correct lead. If you're still um, having lead confusion with your horse, which, by the way, is most likely a cueing problem, so it's actually... Uh, cueing confusion and um, not a problem of the horse most often. It can certainly be horse issues as well. Uh, but if you're still working on getting the correct lead, uh, we want to uh, hold off on the counter canter. But if all that is in place, uh, we're ready to, uh, to introduce the counter canter. And so, again, begs the question of why we want to do that. So first and foremost... The counter canter is an exercise of obedience. And so that um, comes into play in two ways. First of all, getting the horse into the wrong lead. Um, again, if it's a horse that's very well trained and highly experienced, there are several things that could be going on. Um, one is, even though we give the horse an elaborate cue involving maybe three or four or five different aids in different order and, you know, stepping the haunches in, picking up the inside rein, pushing with the seat, kissing with your voice, um, touching him with the inside leg. We, we do this litany of things to cue the horse to canter, and we think that's what's causing him to take the correct lead. Um, but the truth is often horses ridden in the arena learn all on their own to cue for the to take the correct lead based on where the fence is based on where the rail is and so oftentimes we get horses that are highly highly schooled in the arena that have been ridden at a high level for a while but not been asked to counter canter and it's somewhere along the line the horse made up his mind on which lead to take based on where the fence is and so that will reveal itself immediately if no matter what you do, the horse just refuses to take the counter lead. Now, sometimes horses can actually get a little upset about it. Um, these horses that like, no, 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 I've never had to do this. No, 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 I'm not listening, not going to do it. That makes me mad. You're doing something wrong. Um but some horses will, um, after a few attempts and they figure out, oh, she's asking for something different, then they'll take the re lead, um, the counter lead, and not argue with you. So, um, so that's the first level of obedience. The second level is can you sustain the counter canter 
without the horse automatically switching to the correct lead. Now, that is much harder to do than it is to say. So for the horse to go around the arena on the wrong lead, it's quite difficult for him. He has to balance the rider and and he's in an awkward position. He has to keep his nose and his hip to the outside, even though he's traveling um, to in the other direction. And it is physically exerting for the horse. And he knows how easy it is to just switch leads onto the correct lead. And he knows it will be then much, much easier. And so the obedience factor comes into here is will the horse stay on the incorrect lead, even though it's harder for him until you release him from it or until you switch him onto the correct lead or turn him in the direction that makes him the correct uh, on the correct lead. So, so those are the two levels of obedience that, that we get from the counter canter. And you would actually be surprised how many advanced horses will struggle with one or both of those issues. So first and foremost, that's what we're going to work on in the counter canter. Second benefit from the counter canter beyond the obedience is that it clarifies the rider's control and it illuminates whether or not the horse is actually listening to the rider or making his own decisions. And so, you know, in a perfect world, that perfectly trained horse and that rider that had excellent, excellent communication and control of her horse would be able to go on a perfectly straight line, set the horse to take up either lead, canter three or four strides, come to a halt, reposition the horse, take the other lead, three or four strides, come to a halt, take the other lead. So any lead I ask you to take, you should be able to position and cue the horse and have him listen to you and take that lead. So um, the exercise then of counter canter becomes one of refinement of your communication, uh, making teaching the horse that he really has to listen to you. He has to discriminate. He cannot make assumptions about what you're going to ask him to do. Beyond the obedience and communication and control, counter canter will help improve your horse's balance and strength to carry a rider. And so it is an awkward position, um, just like counter bending exercises are. But again, it brings the horse and rider together. It gives you greater control of different parts of the horse's body, uh, being able to, to move him fluidly in any direction and in any shape. And um, as the horse and rider come together on this, um, the horse's balance is improved and, and obviously um, the rider's skills are improving at the same time. The counter canter is particularly useful in training flying lead changes. Um, we often will counter canter horses on a big wide circle several times around and then he's really getting tired because it's very hard to be on the counter lead. Um, so we can then ask him to switch to the lead um, that is the correct lead and it's about 10 times easier for him. So he's eager to do that. Sometimes um, all you have to do is even release the horse from the counter canter and he'll automatically switch to the correct lead. So it's uh, it's a great, um, many different ways you can use the counter canter in teaching flying lead changes. And, you know, finally, 
the counter canter demonstrates a really high level of communication and control of your horse. And so we often see it as a test in in various competitions, whether they are horsemanship or equitation competitions or dressage or um, even uh, Western riding patterns, all kinds of things might uh, potentially require you to either counter canter or take either lead on demand. And so um, it really is, once you get to an advanced level of riding at the canter, it's definitely something you wanna start incorporating into your training. Now let's talk about how you're going to execute the counter canter. Now, if you've never done it before and your horse has all the preparatory skills, you've got great walk to canter departures, your horse takes the correct lead every time, then you're ready to start working on the counter canter. I would first just try to take your horse to the rail and try to cue him for the wrong lead and see what he does. Make sure you give him a really good setup. He Remember, it's important whenever you ask, whatever lead you ask for, that you take the time to position and balance the horse so it's easy for him to take that lead. And he's gonna push off into the lead with his outside hind foot. And so if you're asking for the left lead, he's gonna push off into it from the right hind. And so when we want our horse to take the left lead, we displace his haunches to the left, so he pushes off with that right hind foot. If we want the horse to take the right lead, we displace his haunches to the right by reaching back with your left leg and give a little nudging pressure on the back of his ribs with the Achilles tendon. And that asks him to step his hip um, to the right and he would take the right lead. So we want to move his hip towards the lead we want him to take. So if you're going for your first attempt to counter counter, just go to the rail or even from anywhere in an open riding area and cure your horse specifically for one lead or the other. But if you're on the rail, you want to specifically cue the horse for the wrong lead and see what he does with it. Is he going to try to understand what you're asking and after a few attempts he gets it? Or does he get pissy about it and start getting frustrated and shaking his head and no, I won't do that? Um, all of this just gives us more information on um, how the horse was actually cueing. You know, we think it's our outside leg and inside rein and push with the seat that's cueing the horse to canter for his leads. But in his mind, it's the fence. And so that's the first thing we need to illuminate. So just jump out there and try it. If the horse is really struggling to accept the cue for the wrong lead, then you can ride your horse into the counter canter. So let's say we start out going to the left and we canter around um, around the arena to the left. Then I would cut across the middle, middle of the arena like you're doing a lazy figure eight and just ride the horse onto a circle to the right but try to keep him on the left lead. So you're going to keep his nose tipped to the left. You're going to keep your right leg back. Your weight in the right stirrup, pushing his hips to the outside. Um, that'll help him hold the counter, canter around the turn. You want to make sure your turns are big and wide as possible. It's going to be difficult for him to make turns on the wrong lead. So we want to give him as much room and as much space as you can. 
And um, so if I couldn't cue him onto the wrong lead, I might try just riding him on the, onto the wrong lead and seeing if he'll hold it. And uh, so that's two different ways we can get our horse onto the counter canter. Now, either way, ultimately, we're going to have to address the issue of cueing the horse to take the wrong lead when he's on the rail. And um, if he's frustrated about that, that's an obstacle you need to work through by being persistent, being patient with him. Don't get mad at him. You're the one that taught him that. It's not his fault, but we have to be patient and keep asking and then say, no, that's not what I asked. Try it again. No, that's not what I asked. Try it again. And stay patient with the horse, but, but remain insistent. And eventually he'll he'll search for a different answer and you'll be able to cue um, for whatever lead you ask for. So first and foremost, we want to address the cueing issue and then address the obedience issue of him sustaining the counter canter for as long as you ask. The cueing issue might take you some time. You might find that you have not been as clear in your cueing as you thought you were. You might find that your horse is actually queuing off the rail instead of off of your setup. So you, that might take you, you know, days or weeks to go back and clarify your canter cues. You might work on a an interior line of the arena, come down the center line or the quarter line where the fence doesn't influence him and uh, see if he will listen to your setup better uh, away from the fence before you come back to the fence. So either way, you're going to have, have to work through those obedience issues. And so once you're either riding him onto the counter canter or he's accepting your cue for the counter canter, your next thing is to make sure that he will hold it as you make a big, wide arcing circle. And I'm talking big. I'm talking like 80 to 100 feet wide. Not Don't start with this. It would be very difficult for a horse to canter a 60 meter um, circle on the counter canter. So just because you can do that smallest circle on the correct lead does not mean you could do it on the counter lead. So we want to make it as easy as possible for the horse. That means biggest possible, biggest circle you can do in the area that you ride in. If your arena is, is smaller than that, you, I would wait to practice this until you have more space. Again, make sure you keep your kind of hold your horse's hips to the outside of the circle, tip his nose out slightly to the outside, keep your weight on your inside stirrup. This is, will all help him know that you want him to stay on that lead. And just keep him on that circle long enough to know that he's not going to try to switch leads on you. Um, you can come out of the counter canter either by riding him back to the correct lead, so bringing your circle back in the other direction, or you could ask him to switch onto the correct lead um, from the counter canter on the circle. That's a great exercise for lead changes. Once your horse takes the counter lead, no matter where you are in the arena, and will stay on the counter lead on a big arcing circle, you can start focusing. Uh, your, your riding has now come to an even higher level, and you can start focusing on the horse's balance in the turns. Um, you can focus on a little bit more collection in the counter canter. And um, also you can focus on lead changes. The counter canter is excellent for um, training the horse to 
uh, do the flying lead change. So basically, once you've worked through all of this stuff and your horse is pretty comfortable uh, sustaining the counter canter and uh, everything else is in order, then what we can do is we can put the horse on a big wide arcing circle at the counter canter, go two, three, four times around to where he's really getting hard for him. And then uh, you'll be holding him in that counter counter with your inside leg, pushing his hips to the outside. So then when you think he's ready uh, to getting tired uh, on that lead, you can bring your weight back to center and then cue him for that inside lead as you push his haunches back to the inside. And he'll often gladly switch the correct lead um, just because he's so tired. So as I said, there's many, many benefits to um, doing the counter canter with your horse. If you've never done it at all, you've been riding your horse for a long time, work up to this slowly. We don't want to just jerk the rug out from under your horse and and uh, make him think you you've gone crazy. So if if he's if you haven't asked this of your horse ever and you've been riding him a long time, he has certain expectations of you that don't include counter canter. So we want to be patient with that horse and understand that you're the one that taught him. You're never going to do that. So uh, work up to it slowly over, you know, days and weeks and even months to really perfect these kinds of skills uh, with the high level horse. And now it's time for my favorite segment. What the hey? Q&A. In this segment, we pick a few unique questions from our listeners each month and answer them on the air. If you'd like to submit a written question for What the Hay, please go to my Facebook page at Julie Goodnight Horsemanship or email podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Our first question comes from Jill, and she says, Hi, Julie. Can you tell me the correct placement of the saddle on the horse's back? I have too many people telling me confusing things. Now my horse is downhill a bit, so I have a bridging blanket I use on him, but I don't like putting the saddle right on his shoulders because I think it hurts him. He tosses his head a lot, so I need to know where to put the saddle so it is comfortable for him. That's an excellent question, Jill. And I wish I could give you a clear, straightforward answer over the airwaves, but it really is easier to address when you're looking at a horse and actually I can point out body parts, but I think I can give you a relatively good idea of what you need to be looking for in terms of the correct placement of the saddle on the horse's back. And the reason why I can't give you a super black and white answer is because every horse is put together a little bit differently in the withers, in the shoulders, in the back, um, their, the weight on the horse, how prominent their withers are, are they mutton withered, um, how far back their withers sit behind the girth area of the horse, in front of the girth area of the horse. So the same saddle will sit differently on different horses. Now, it's good that you asked this question because I will tell you, you know, one of the first things I do when I'm teaching a horsemanship clinic is take a look at everybody's um, tack and make sure that the horse is appropriately saddled. There are often mistakes in the way people have tacked up their horse, adjusted the tack, sometimes using the equipment incorrectly uh, or equipment they shouldn't be using um, for the job they're doing. So 
always take a pretty good analysis of the tack on the horse, and you'd be surprised how often we find um, quote-unquote saddle fit problems that are actually just saddle positioning problems. So that's one of the first things that you want to check when you think you have a saddle fit problem is are you actually positioning the saddle correctly. Now, all saddles that have a tree, um, no matter English or Western, will have a screw at the base of the pommel. And that screw is attaching the pommel to the bars of the tree. That screw at the base of the pommel represents the forwardmost point of pressure on from the tree of the saddle. There will be, the bars of the tree extend forward from there, but they tend to flare out. Um, and most, that's gonna be the forwardmost point of weight bearing. And so, when when you look at the back of the horse as you're placing the saddle on him, just below his withers sits the top of his shoulder blades. And this is where all horses are different. The way their withers are configured, the exactly where their shoulder blades sits. Some horses are very straight shouldered. Some horses have very sloping shoulders. And so where their top of their shoulder blade is in relationship to the withers, are the withers prominent, are the withers flat? Um, and then just behind the withers and the top of the shoulder blade is a indentation that we call the pocket. And um, that is back behind, just behind the top of the shoulder blade of the horse. And if you feel around and watch the horse move, you, you can figure this out, it's not hard to see. And so it's very important that the screw that's at the base of the pommel of your saddle is behind the shoulder blade of the horse and sitting in that pocket area and not sitting where it will interfere with the shoulder blades. So that's one of the um, biggest points of concern in terms of pop proper placement of the saddle. Now you can put that saddle right up on the horse's back without any pad or blanket or anything. And you can feel, reach underneath it and feel the top of the shoulder blade. You can have somebody lead that horse while, while your hand is under, uh, is under the saddle and on top of the shoulder blade and feel where that most forward point of pressure is. And, and then you'll know where the saddle sits. Now, depending on the way, type of saddle that you're using, the rigging on that saddle, where the, the cinch or the girth attaches, the... And, and, and also your horse's confirmation, where that girth hangs or where the cinch hangs off that saddle is gonna be a little bit different. Different saddles with different rigging, different horses with different confirmation. So don't ever let somebody tell you that the girth of the cinch has to be all the way up close to the elbow of the horse. That's not really true. And um, with different types of horses and different types of saddle, you're gonna get um, some variance in where that where that girth actually um, comes across the, the chest of the horse. So um, if you have the saddle too far forward, it's gonna be inter interfering with the shoulder blades of the horse. If you have that saddle too far back, it will be putting um, too much pressure on the front of the tree, not enough on the back of the tree. The back of the saddle will be interfering with the horse as well. And also, you'll uh, the rider will feel very out of balance. So, a good way to uh, before you fasten the cinch or girth on your horse, put the saddle on, 
I like to put the saddle on a little bit forward and then slide it back into place so I feel it sort of um, connect and, and sink into that pocket. And then I want to step back to the side of the horse. So I want to be directly perpendicular to the saddle. I want to step back about 10 or 15 feet and eyeball the seat of that saddle and see if it looks level. If you have your saddle too far forward, it's going to look like it's going uphill. If you have it too far back, it's going to look like it's going downhill. And if you have that saddle sitting right where it needs to be, it's generally going to look pretty level in the seat, even though your horse may be built downhill. So I hope that helps you figure out the correct saddle placement uh, with your horse. You know, you always take advantage of, of someone who has a lot of knowledge and experience. And when you're not sure, just ask them to check. Hey, could you just check my saddle and see if things in the right place? I think anybody with knowledge and experience would be happy to um, check for you and you'll just start developing a better eye for these sorts of things. Megan, go ahead and read the next question. The next question comes from Manya and she says, I have a three-year-old that I broke a few months ago. He has two habits that I'd like to deal with. One, he wants to put his head down and baby bronc when he is first asked to canter. And two, he doesn't go straight down the rail. He rubs the rail like he isn't paying attention to where his body is in relation to the rail. Well, thanks for that great question, Manya. And understanding correctly, you have a three-year-old Greenbro course, sounds like less than 60 days on it. So that's pretty green. And two-part question. One is when you first ask the horse to canter, he's getting a little bronchy on you. Now, that's a sort of vague term, could mean anything from the horse putting his head down, crow hopping a little bit, maybe shaking his head a little bit, to kicking out with one foot, to kicking out with both feet, to really cracking in two and bucking and brawling. I'm going to assume it's not the latter, and I'm going to assume it's more the former, that your horse is just putting his head down a little bit, crow hopping a little bit, wiggling around on you when you first canter. So first of all, this is not all at all uncommon. Often the feel of the rigid tra saddle tree strapped to his back doesn't bother the horse at the walk or trot, but when you canter and he rounds up his back, it uh, feels a little bit different to him. And so a lot of times you'll, when a horse is this green, you'll feel a little bit of crow hopping when you first canter. And I just want to more or less ignore it and just gently urge the horse forward, let him kind of work out his, um, his tension and move him forward. And you should see that rapidly diminish. Now, when horses crow hop a little bit when you first canter him, that is often a sign of what we call a cold-backed horse, um, cold, C-O-L-D. Uh, cold in the back. And um, I think that's a really, you know, old, old term. And it, and what we know about these cold back horses is that generally once they warm up, they work themselves out of the tension that's causing their discomfort in their back. And, and this often only occurs at the canter and it typically only occurs when you first ask the horse to canter or if you have not ridden or cantered the horse 
in a while. Um, sometimes a really cold back horse will will bow up his back or crow hop a little bit when you first saddle him or when you first start moving around on him. Um, but but most often we see it when you first ask a horse to canter, he's not really um, super warmed up. So generally we don't worry too much about this. We allow the horse the time he needs to warm up. We let him stretch his head down long and low on a loose rein and just kind of get his back stretched out and situated the way it's comfortable for him. However, I will say that I, I have been told by veterinary chiropractics that uh, I highly respect that there's really no such thing as a cold back horse, that a cold back horse is a horse that needs a chiropractic adjustment. So that's just something to consider food for thought. You know, a lot of young Greenbrook horses are going to crow hop a little bit at the saddle um, the first, you know, early, early part of their riding, but we should see them work out of that as they get more and more accustomed to the feel of the saddle. So check your saddle fit, consider whether or not the horse might need a chiropractic adjustment. Otherwise, just ride the horse forward out of his um, crow hoppiness. Don't do anything to encourage it like yeehaw or kick or spur or anything like that. And most importantly, never stop a horse when he's feeling a little bucky, crow hoppy, round in his back, um, because then you reward that behavior and you most certainly get it again. So you don't want to stop that horse from the canter until he feels just right to me, to you. And to me, that means in a, a three-year-old greenbrook horse, I would just want him moving freely forward with his head down, relaxed, without me pushing him, without me holding him back um, on a, a, you know, light contact. And um, so only make, make sure you only stop the horse from the canter when he feels right to you. Um, and that's what you'll get the next time, the next day when you ask. So as, as far as a horse rubbing on the rail and it seeming like he doesn't know where his body is, that's because you're exactly right. He does not know where his body is. On rare occasions, a horse will um, learn to deliberately rub you against the rail, but I wouldn't, uh, a horse that green and young, um, hasn't figured that out yet, but he is totally unaware of where your body is. Now, look, any horse that you're riding or that you put, let's say a big pack saddle on, he doesn't really have the intellectual capacity to understand he is now six or eight or 12 or 10 inches or whatever, wider than normal, and that that width coming from your knee or your leg or, or whatever, the pack saddle, he can't really judge that for himself. He, he, he knows how wide his body is, but that's about it. And um, so when you are riding that horse or leading a pack horse, it's your job to keep him out of the trees. It's your job to keep your knees clear of the fence and stuff. So invariably, a young green horse is going to rub you against the fence. It it almost always happens. Usually on the very first ride, they'll, they'll sort of start figuring out where to stay over time. So I kind of, that's something I want to get past right away when I'm first riding an unbroke horse is I, I want to 
you know, l- let him feel that when he goes up against the, le- the fence, my leg's going to push into him. Um, sometimes when a, a horse, a green horse pushes me up against the rail, it's actually a big pet peeve of mine because I got hurt that way when I was about 16. And um, so I kind of uh, scold the horse, bump the horse. If he's already broke, I wouldn't do it the first, you know, couple of rides. I just want him to be aware of the sensation um, so it doesn't scare him. But, you know, if if I've already got you know, 30 days or more on him, um, I, I would start, if he rubbed me up against a rail, crowded me against the rail, I might bump him with that leg a little bit, scold him a little bit. Um, to try to bring his attention to the fact that I don't want him that close. So it's no big deal, just something you have to get used to on green horses, and 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 they, over time, learn not to do that. If it ever seems like the horse is doing it intentionally, of course, you would want to scold the horse hard. If you, um, if you turn their nose into the fence, let them rub their nose on the fence every time they rub your leg on it, they'll, they'll probably stop doing that pretty fast. That's only if they're if you feel strongly that the horse is doing it intentionally. I doubt your three year old horse is. So good luck with that horse, Manya and um, Megan. Let's have the next question. Cheryl, the questions you pose are certainly common ones. A lot of people have trouble with their horse being barn sour, um, not wanting to. Um, go away from the barn. Sounds like your horse is willing to go away and go away alone. Um, but he becomes immediately obsessed with returning to the barn and he's only cooperative with you for a very short ride. And so I'm not sure I would place this squarely in the category of barn sour, especially since you say, even with other horses, he does the same. I think that you have a problem with work ethic your horse has come to believe he has certain unalienable rights, and that right includes not to have to work past, you know, 30 minutes or whatever, or he's got some sort of geographic association where he only has to go so far. Now, how he's how you've convinced him of this, how he's learned that, maybe he's never had a good work ethic. This is something that is one of the very most important things we teach a young horse when he first begins his training, that um, you have to keep working until I tell you to stop. You don't get a choice of when you stop. And so when horses are improperly handled and improperly trained, it could be a very well-trained horse that has subsequently learned he can get away with stuff. Um, But these things build over time with the smallest infractions. And so you, let's say you asked your horse to canter and he broke into a trot and then ultimately you just stopped. You asked your horse to canter and he crow hopped a little bit, so you stopped. Um, you asked your horse to get in the trailer and he said no, so he gave up. You, The horse learns, he's constantly thinking about how to get out of doing something that's unpleasant to him. Um, horses, the one, the only thing horses seek as much as safety and security is comfort. And so they're animals that are going to always look for a way to rest and be comfortable unless and until you have very strict rules um, regarding work ethic. And, you know, people 
don't want to be strict and stern with horses, but then what happens is over time, you degrade your authority by letting the horse choose when he stops, when he slows down, when he doesn't do something, um, when he listens to you, when he doesn't. And over time, your authority is so eroded that over time, your authority is so eroded that you can't really um, establish much control over the horse. So work ethic is a very fundamental skill we teach that horse, which is that once I tell you to do something, you should continue doing it until I tell you to do something different, whether that be slow down, speed up, turn right, turn left, or stop. Um, once I tell you to walk, once I tell you to trot, once I tell you to go in this direction, I'll be the one to tell you when I want you to do something different. And so you've got a situation where your horse is telling you when he's going to do something different. So I think this is a way more fundamental issue than just barn sour or going out on the trail alone, as a lot of people have trouble with. So how you tackle this, I think it has to happen at the most fundamental level in everything that you do with the horse on the ground and in the saddle. You mentioned he has excellent ground manners. That's great. I think you need to start asking more of this horse in different situations, even, you know, in the arena at the barn, you can, let's say, decide you're going to do a 15 minute long trot and see how far you get before the horse tries to quit on you. If he never once tries to quit on you and in that 15 minute long trot, if you're not having to pedal him and tell him to keep going, then um, maybe you do not have a work ethic problem. So I would start with things like that. Um, also, um, you want to just work on your authority with the horse. So is is the horse um, pulling at the gate? Is the horse you know speeding up when he turns towards the gate, slowing down when he turns away? Um, look for other signs uh, that the horse is is not accepting your authority. Um, you mentioned that you have tried making the horse work harder when you're returning. Um, as long as you're returning, he probably does not care how hard you make him work. In other words, once you're headed back towards the barn, he would probably gladly go at a dead run. So I don't know exactly what you're doing, but, but let me tell you what I would do. Um, I would, at any time the horse peeped his an ear towards the barn or turned his nose like he was thinking about turning around, I would lay into him, put him up to a trot and make him trot harder and farther away from the barn. I would be watching his focus throughout my ride as I leave the barn. And at the first instant, he showed focus back towards the barn or showed an inclination to try to quit and turn around on me, whatever he's doing. Um, again, I would uh, get after him hard, partially put him up into a trot a, straight away from the barn um, so that um, over time, every time he begins to focus or show his intention to turn around and go back to the barn, he would associate that with having to go harder and faster away from the barn. If I were coming back to the barn and he started um, doing whatever he's doing, speeding up, jigging, you know, acting anxious, trying to go harder, I would uh, immediately turn him away from the barn and I would probably zigzag him 
away from the barn. So I'd turn right, then left, then right, then left, then right, then left, each turn zigzagging away from the barn. And I would be scolding him and kicking him forward and making it unpleasant for him. And then when he just sort of said, yes, ma'am, and and was going away from the barn as I directed him, then I would let him walk, come back to a walk, calm down, um, but keep riding him away from the barn. And I want to I will never turn him around to go back towards the barn until he is 100% compliant in going away from the barn. So that's just a few things I can think about off the top of my head. You don't really go into a lot of detail of exactly what this horse is doing. But I think you have to address this on a more fundamental level in terms of your relationship with this horse. Um, maybe give some consideration to, you say he's 22, so he's been around the bush a long time. Did he ever have a good work ethic or has he just gotten, you know, old and tired? Um, so where, where has, where did your lack of authority over this horse come into play? So good luck with that. Uh, this is a common problem. I know it's a frustrating one. There are no cheap and easy and quick fixes. And uh, you just got to put some time into your relationship with the horse and training him uh, to be responsive and obedient. So good luck, Cheryl. Thank you for joining me for an interesting and hopefully useful conversation about the counter canner. I hope you found some good tips that will help you improve your communication and control and help your horse be a better athlete. Don't forget to check out my online membership programs. You'll find the solutions you need when you need them. You can subscribe to my full training library or enroll in a horsemanship short course or join at the premier level in the Interactive Academy where you receive assignments and personalized coaching from me. Just go to Julie Goodnight. Just go to signin.juliegoodnight.com and join the club. Next month, we'll tackle another horse training subject to help you find the solutions you need to help you make your horse life better. Be sure to hit subscribe now so you won't miss next month. Be sure to hit subscribe now so you don't miss next month's podcast. I enjoy sharing my horse care and training experience with you. And I appreciate all your feedback, suggestions, and questions. I love to hear what topics interest you the most. So if you have questions or podcast topics you'd like me to address, please message me on Facebook at Julie Goodnight or email me at podcast at juliegoodnight.com. Thanks again for your awesome comments and for the five-star ratings. It helps me out a lot and it helps us rise in the rankings so more horse lovers just like you and me can find this podcast. I'm Julie Goodnight. Thanks for listening and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Be sure to visit juliegoodnight.com slash academy for more in-depth training advice. If you enjoyed this podcast, I'd really appreciate your good review on iTunes so more horse lovers just like you can find my podcast. Thanks for listening, and don't forget to enjoy the ride. Mm-hmm.